Hello and welcome to our trustee series edition of Integral. My name is Travis Smith. I lead the health practice here at Foster & Foster. Hosting with me today is Jason Franken. Jason leads our pension practice at Foster & Foster and is a fellow of the Society of Actuaries and an enrolled actuary. Jason has over 20 years experience as a pension actuary helping clients solve challenges associated with retirement benefit plans. Jason, welcome. Please take a minute to tell our audience a little more about your experience as a pension actuary. Great. Thanks, Travis. Uh, as, as he mentioned, my name is Jason Franken. I'm a fellow of the Society of Actuaries and an enrolled actuary. Uh, I have, have been with Foster & Foster for, for 13 years now. Actually, I just celebrated my 13th anniversary last week. Um, I have over 20, or nearly 25 years of pension consulting experience, so I had 11 or 12 years prior to joining Foster & Foster. Uh, we work, I, personally, I work with plans of all sizes from, you know, smaller plans at the, at the local level, um, communities across the state of Illinois, you know, Florida, you know, to much larger um, state plans, um, some in, in Arizona, um, you know, and, and, and so, you know, I have a, a wide uh, breadth of experience um, consulting with pension plans of all shapes and sizes. Great, thanks. The focus of today's conversation is really for our trustees and whether those are trustees on pension plans or health and welfare plans. Jason and I are going to be discussing questions that we've received that relate to our areas of expertise uh, from trustees throughout the country. These questions will help provide insights into the role of these trustees and we hope will educate new trustees or trustees who've uh, sat on boards for a few years. The first question that we have comes from a pension trustee in the Southeast. Uh, is the funded ratio the best measure of the health of a pension plan? Well, that, that's a question that I get uh, regularly. And, you know, the, the funded ratio is, is the one uh, metric that everybody always points to. It, it's the one that, that shows up in the newspapers. In, you know, in the state of Illinois, I read all the time about how some of our plans are you know, 18% funded in, in some cases or 45% funded in, in, in other cases. And that's, you know, people point to that because it is, it, it's a metric that everyone thinks as being the one and only metric to judge the health of a pension plan based upon. And I would caution people from doing that. It, while it can be a, a good metric to, to look at, there are several other metrics that you know, can tell you maybe even more information about where the pension plan is from a financial uh, health perspective. And, and, and so I, I always like to, to compare two pension funds. They may, be, they may have the exact same funded ratio, but they could be going in completely opposite directions. So just because two plans are 70% funded, don't mean, there's nothing about that that means that those plans are in the exact same uh, position, financial position. And, and what I mean by that is one plan maybe is, you know, has no retirees, you know, and is just, just has act, actives, and there are no uh, benefit payments that will be made from the plan for years, if, if not several years, or even a decade or, or, or two. Meanwhile, the other plan might have, you know, 100 actives and 400 retirees. And, and so the, the cash flow, the expected cash flow going forward is, is going to be much different than, than the other plan. So judging the pension plan by, by the funded ratio, like I said, is, is not a, a great 
uh, is not the only measure. If, if you ask me, would you rather be 70% funded or 80% funded, you know, my answer would be, well, what is the funded what's the funding policy of the plan look like? If the 80% plan doesn't have a solid funding policy and they're just making contributions willy-nilly, and the 70% plan has a very strict funding policy that shows financial, and they have you know strong financial uh, discipline. You know, I, I would rather be the 70% funded plan because I know as unfunded liability arises, as it will. You know, it's you know we're we're never going to get exactly 7% or whatever our assumption is. So as new unfunded liability arises, we need to be able to make sure that we retire that debt in an orderly manner. And, and, and so having a, a strong plan in place, to me, is, is more important than what your funded ratio is. That only goes so far, right? If your plan is, you know, 30% funded, well, I'd rather, you know, much rather be 80% funded without a plan than to be 30% funded. But, but, but again, you know, it, it go. It's more about the the plan, the the path that we're on, and you know where we go from here. Not necessarily a static point in time measurement. The other thing that I would mention about the funded ratio is that, you know, it it can be changed you know if if as the actuary i recommend some changes to assumptions well your 70 percent funded ratio might become 65 percent overnight or maybe it becomes 75 percent your your funded ratio is only as 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 uh, reliable as the assumptions that are being used and if the assumptions that are being used in the actuarial valuation do not reflect future experience and you know it's tough to predict what's going to happen but if if they end up not reflecting that experience, then the funded ratio that you have today really doesn't mean a whole lot. And, and so, uh, again, there are, are several measures and several things that you need to consider when you're looking at the financial health of, of a pension plan. It's not just the, the one uh, funded ratio. And as I said, that's the one that always grabs the headlines. That's, you know, I go across the country and, and I hear people say, well, my Funded ratio is is ninety percent funded. We're in great shape. Yeah, I, you know, a ninety percent funded ratio is is really strong. But just because you're at ninety percent today doesn't mean that you're going to be at ninety percent tomorrow. And it, you you need to have a strong uh, plan in place and and make sure you follow that plan to ensure that your your plan truly is on a, a good path, regardless of what the funded ratio is. Great. Thanks, Jason. Are there other metrics that uh, trustees should be aware of when sort of looking at their own plan or comparing to other plans? Yeah. So within the last couple of years, the uh, American Academy of Actuaries did release a new actuarial standard of practice. And that actuarial standard of practice uh, refers to risk metrics. And, and, and so we as actuaries now are required to you know, provide commentary and you know metrics uh, regarding you know surrounding the risk that a, a pension plan has, and and so obviously the funded ratio is, is one of them, but things like and I may have mentioned this already, but the support ratio, um, that which is the 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 ratio of the actives to the inactives in, in the plan. You know this if the more actives that are in the in the plan you know, the, the, better, the better it's going to be, the, the more money that's coming in 
to support those inactives. You know, when I think about this ratio, I, I think about Social Security, right? Over, over the years, you know, 30, 40 years ago, there were a lot more people paying in Social Security than that were drawing from, from you know, those benefits from the, the government. As time has evolved, the baby boomers started re retiring, are getting, you know, reaching Social Security retirement age. Now there's a lot less actives paying, you know, a lot less active people, working people paying into it compared to the number of, of people that are drawing Social Security benefits. So when I think of that, that support ratio, that's, you know, one thing that I always like to think of. Um, we all, the net cash flow, again, I, I alluded, to, alluded to this before, but, you know, this is the, you know, when you compare the amount of money coming into the plan, and obviously this is you know, very similar to the support ratio, they sort of, you know, go hand in hand, but the amount of money that's going into the plan, you know, through contributions versus the amount of money that's coming out of the plan in the form of benefit payments, uh, expenses that are paid from the plan. So, so yeah, that that's another thing. The, the more positive that is, that net cash flow is, the more money that we can, you know, the more that we can expect the asset base of the plan to grow. If you have a negative cash flow, that usually happens when you have a mature plan. And by a mature plan, I, I mean that you have a, a lot more, more uh, inactives or retirees or beneficiaries who are drawing benefits from from the plan, and when you when it's negative, obviously your your asset base you would expect to go down, um, unless the investment income that's being earned by the plan um, exceeds the, the that, that amount. So uh, the, these are a couple of, of measures. There are other measures, you know, the asset volatility ratio. That's the you know the market value of the assets relative to the total annual payroll. The total annual payroll obviously is the amount that's being paid to the to the active uh, active people. Um, the accrued liability ratio that's the the inactive accrued liability versus the total accrued liability. And again, these are all measuring similar type of uh, of things. And and often it's it's about basically goes to the amount of money leaving the plan versus coming into the plan. And where these ratios uh, are relative, um, you know, for, for your plan can really determine, you know, the direction it's headed. Um, other plans, even though they may have that same funded ratio, these these other other uh, ratios and metrics might be different. So by looking at that, you could tell that, okay, this plan might be going in a different direction than my plan is headed just because of these other metrics and not just, you know, not just, again, focusing on the funded ratio. Jason, our next question comes from right here in Illinois. What is negative amortization and how does it affect a plan's health? Well, that's a, that's a great question, especially coming from the state of Illinois, where uh, unfortunately a lot of negative amortization has sort of been built in to the Illinois Pension Code. So I guess to summarize, at, at a very high level, negative amortization is when your, your payments, your, your contributions to your pension plan does not cover the amount that's being earned by the active employees plus interest on your unfunded liability. So by that, by, by that measure, you know, your unfunded liability is going to continue to increase even though you're, you're making a payment. Because your payment 
is not large enough to start paying down. It, it's, it's really very similar to having a credit card balance of, of $1,000, and you're paying $100 per month of interest on that $1,000. But in, you know, in, in, you get, in your credit card statement every month, you say, they tell you that the minimum is $25. So you make that $25 payment, you've satisfied your obligation for that month for the credit card company, but what's really happened? What's really happened is you've fallen further behind. Your balance was 1000 You had $100 of interest, but you only made a $25 payment. So now next month, your balance is going to be $1,075. That, in a nutshell, is really what negative amortization is. And this is, you know, negative amortization really comes from the the, the methods that are being used to pay down your unfunded liability. There are several uh, variables that you need to consider when you're determining your amortization payment. How long of a period are you going, are, is your amortization going to be? That's very similar to a, a mortgage, right? Are you going to have a 15-year mortgage? Are you going to have a 30-year mortgage? Um, so that's that's one factor. Is it going to be a, an open amortization or a closed amortization or or layered amortization? And you know what what that that just tells you what you know is a closed amortization is if I have a 30 year period, it's going to go 30, 29, 28 until you reach until that li that uh, liability is paid off. An open amortization would be okay. It's going to be a 15 year amortization every year. Uh, a layered amortization, you know, there's each year a new layer is created, so you end up with your unfunded liability being really 30 different payments or, or 20 different payments or whatever your period is, and all of the payments are in varying, in vari at varying points of, of in, in the repayment process. And, and so those are the different kinds of amortizations. Um, there, there's also the level dollar versus the level percentage of payroll. If you have a level dollar amortization, it's kind of like having a, a normal 30-year mortgage where the payments are set such that the payment covers all of the interest and just a sliver of the principal up front. And as you pay down your principal, you end up with more and more of the principal being paid down and, and less and less interest as you go along. The level percentage of payroll approach is really what introduces the the uh, the concept of the negative amortization because when you have a level percentage of payroll amortization, the payments are designed to increase over time, and and so if you're assuming those payments are going to increase by three percent per year, the payment today. Is smaller than if you than than otherwise be because those payments in the future are, are going to be larger, and and so what's happened here in the state of Illinois is that we've set this level percentage of payroll, introducing the what's often referred to as the Illinois pension ramp. The payments start small, they get larger and larger over time. And over a 30-year period, these payments are designed to double or triple in, in some cases. However, after 10, 12, 13 years, the payments are, are much larger than where they started with. And, and so in many cases, 
municipalities or, or the state to said, well, we need relief. And so what happens is we reset our amortization period and, and lower our, our payments back to you know, the, the start. So what we end up with is a perpetual state of negative amortization where we're always paying less than, their, that our, than our interest on, our, our, on the unfunded liability. And, and when this happens, when you're paying less than your interest on the unfunded liability, it, it, it's really difficult, if not nearly impossible, for your funded ratio to ever really increase in any meaningful way. It becomes stagnant. The only time it would really increase is those last 10 years of that amortization uh, period. But as I mentioned, we never get to those last 10 years because we always re reset, re reset the target. Illinois is is unique in that we're basically funding that entire our entire unfunded liability. We don't have different layers like like we do in other states or in the the private sector. So if if we have different layers, it really doesn't completely eliminate the the, the problem, but it it, it severely uh, reduces it. And and that's because if you have a 20-year, you know, payment on the level percentage of payroll approach, there's all sorts of negative amortization on that payment. So having one base with that level percentage of payroll approach really is what creates the problem. And when you're setting your amortization policy, you can't cherry pick the things that you want. You can't say, I want a 30-year amortization, I want it to be open, and I want it to be level percentage of payroll, because those things combined don't work, work together. You know, a 30-year amortization can work if all of the other factors are, are favorable. But in, in most cases, a 30-year amortization is, is much too long because of, of those, those other factors. So I, I guess what, at the end of the day, when you're setting your funding policy, you need to, you can't think of these things in silos. You need to think of everything in, in aggregate and how all of the various factors uh, play, play against each other to make sure you come up with a policy that, that makes sense and is not designed to just simply kick the can down the road. Great. Thank you, Jason. Our final pension question comes to us from the Northeast. Which actuarial assumptions are most important? Thanks, Travis. Uh, again, this is a, a, a very popular question um, amongst you know, new trustees that, that I often get. Uh, the, it, the interest rate or investment return assumption is, you know, that's the one that grabs most of the headlines and, you know, deservedly so. It, it is the one you know, that, that uh, you know, that, that carries the most weight. And, you know, I, I, when I think of the investment return assumption, obviously I, compound interest comes to mind. And I, I've said this many times before, but, you know, Einstein said the eighth wonder of the world was uh, compound interest. Those who understand it earn it, and those who don't pay it. And, and so this, this is a, uh, and this is a prime example. If you just, if you compound uh, your, uh, you know, any sort of asset, at 7% for 30 or 40 years versus 6% for 30 or 40 years, that number at the end of 40 years is going to be much, much different. 
you know, on paper, the difference between 7% and 6% doesn't sound like a whole lot, but compounding upon, comp uh, you know, upon compounding over a 40-year period does produce significantly different results. And, and so, again, this is, this is the, the assumption that carries the most weight. For public plans and the Taft-Hartley plans that we work with, this assumption is most, most often set by the expectation of what the asset is going to, the assets are going to earn over the long term. And this is going to be driven by the investment policy statement. How, how are our assets uh, invested? A plan that has 80% in fixed income is going to have a much different expectation than a plan that is invested 80% in, in equities. And, and so our expectation for future uh, returns is what is going to set, you know, determine what this assumption is. For single employer plans, it's really driven by by yield curve. You know, they're they're you know it's it's prescribed. They have to use a, a yield curve, and you know when things happen, you know the pandemic hit. There's you know relief that's provided. So the, you know the, the pandemic in combination with the historically low interest rates could lead you know single you know employers to have to contribute uh, much larger amounts than what they would have. There recently has been legislation passed that alleviates some of that, gives them some relief, allows them to, to phase in to, to the lower interest rates over time. But, but again, this is, I, I would say, the most important assumption. It's, uh, there are several other assumptions. Uh, the mortality table is, is obviously one that is, is very important for the valuation of, of pension plans. The Society of Actuaries often does mortality studies that are, you know, they're done usually every decade or so. Uh, the the last bit, well, there's been a couple studies that have been completed in the last decade. Uh, and two, there's a RP 2014 table, which was released, yeah, well, 15 or 16, I, I can't remember exactly when, when it was re released, but that was based on private sector uh, pension plan data from across the country. There has also been a public sector study that was completed in 2019. It's called the Pub 2010. You know, the 2010. You don't let that fool you. It was released in 2019. Uh, we'll have to bring that up with the Society of Actuaries to you know, it's confuse a little bit confusing, but but it, it that ta those tables were set based on experience in public sector plans uh, from across the country. And in those tables really reflect what's happened from a mortality, you know, from a, a death perspective. One of the things that we have to do as, as actuaries is determine, okay, what's gonna happen in the future? So we can't just simply use the table that's there today because as we know, over time, life expectancies have uh, increased. And, and so we have projection scales that we use to build in future mortality improvements. So this is a, a pretty, pretty complex assumption to determine how long people are going to live. But for pension plans, that's what, you know, that's really what determines the liability of a, a plan. If we, if, if everybody lived according to uh, the 19, 
65 railroad or coal miners mortality table, well, the liability would be much different. But just because we use that table, that doesn't mean that's how long people are going to live. So we need to accurately reflect the life expectancies of the members. And the new mortality tables with the projection scales help us do that. We also have assumptions on retirement age. When are people going to retire? In you know, in you know, private sector plans, you know, usually that's around 65 is is the average retirement age, or maybe even a little later. Social Security normal retirement age is age 67. Uh, but for other plans that we work with, such as public safety plans, they have much earlier retirement dates. They you know could be they could retire early as as age 50 if they have you know 20 years of of, of service, let's say, or in some cases. There's a, a you know 25 or 30 and out, so people could be retiring in their late 40s, even if they haven't re reached age age 50. We have to look at each particular plan and say, okay, this person or this plan has a, a 55 and 20 requirement. Some people might retire early, but there's usually some sort of early retirement reduction. Um, but we, we need to set assumptions based on what we think the actual experience for the plan is going to be. Um, there are other what I'll call demographic assumptions. The investment return assumption was an economic assumption, and there are others of those that I'll get to in a second. But other demographic assumptions include uh, disability rates. This is, this is another one that is, is usually pretty important for, for public safety plans. Uh, termination rates, how many people are going to leave the the company before they re reach retirement eligibility um, so those are like I said demographic assumptions other economic assumptions are the the salary increase assumption um, that determines what a member's pay is going to be at retirement and I'll, and i would say the majority of pension benefits are based on some salary in, in some shape uh, uh, in some form. There are other pension plans that are fixed dollar, for example, and aren't are independent of, of salary, but most are based on salary. So having some sort of uh, assumption to help us determine what their pay is going to be at retirement is extremely important. Inflation, which is obviously part of the salary uh, assumption, but inflation can be you know an important assumption as well, especially for those plans that provide uh, post-retirement cost of living adjustments that you know those adjustments are often driven by our by inflation and and so that is obviously an, an important assumption uh, one that is that is often uh, overlooked in, in especially in the public world is the payroll growth assumption that sounds very similar to the salary increase but the salary increase really is the individual members the payroll growth is is for the 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 department as a whole or the company as a whole what's their total salary going to look like their total payroll going to look like over time and those salary increases for the individual members are going to be part of that but it's also the number of people if the number of people is going down well you're you could provide five percent salary increases to everybody but your total payroll is going to go down and so that payroll growth assumption you know is, is really a separate assumption from the individual's uh, pay and this is important for those plans that use the level percentage of pay, payroll approach 
because this determines how steep their um, their pension ramp is. Um, going back to a, a prior session that we where we talked about that, um, and this could determine whether or not there's negative amortization that that's included in in their contribution uh, funding policy. So these, you know, as I, you know, and this is just that's not even all of the assumptions, right? There's how many, you know, what percentage of the people are married, um, what the spousal age difference is. Um, there are many, many assumptions that go into an actuarial evaluation. And, you know, there are some that are more important than others and, or, ha or carry more weight than others. But in, in the end, you know, we need to be using assumptions that are, you know, that are realistic no matter, no matter what they are. And, doing an experience study every five years or so to you know correctly uh, set those assumptions is something that we recommend and you know not just for for you for the the plan's sake but for the stakeholders especially in in you know the public sector where the taxpayers are, are funding a lot of these benefits we want to make sure that we can point to something you know we that we could have documentation for all of our assumptions and and make sure that the assumptions being used as best we can accurately reflect the future anticipated uh, experience of the plan